I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today in the studio, we have top strategist and chief executive of Families vs. Assault Rifles Pack, Matt Goad. At the tender age of 19, statistics wonderkin Matt Goad began his career as a brilliant financial strategist advising institutional investors, Wall Street firms, and senior executives. Starting so young, he developed a deep understanding of the way things work and an abiding passion for affecting positive change in U.S. policies that concretely improve regular people's lives. In the recent rash of gun violence, Matt could not sit idly by. He was so inspired by the resilience of Parkland High's remarkable students, he helped found Families versus Assault Rifles, a political action committee that seeks to change assault weapons policy on the federal level. Join us as Matt shares his compelling solution to one of America's biggest problems. Tell us a little bit about who you are and where you came from. Born and raised in Oakland, California. Public schools, not a particularly great student, but a pretty good aptitude for math and history. And uh, while I was uh, going to college, I was taking the money I had made from my bar mitzvah, my paper route, working at a gas station, and started doing what were considered then very esoteric option strategies. The uh, options exchanges had just opened, and this was probably a year or so after, and I had a uh, Hewlett Packard 65 that I programmed for option strategies. And while I was doing this, I was going to Cal State Hayward, studying statistics and finance. And as I would take my breaks from class and go to the payphone, I'd kept a, you know, a lot of quarters in my pocket so I could call my broker. Um, Pre-cell phone days. <laughs> yeah, way, way pre-computer days. One of the calls, the, uh, my broker said, well, hey, the uh, chairman of the firm would love to meet you. And I'd read about him. He'd been quoted in Barron's and, you know, kind of a leading expert in options. And I said, how cool would that be? <laughs> so, and just well, said, were you like 20 yeah. years old? Uh, no, I was 19. 19. So I said, yeah, whenever. I said, well, how's like Wednesday? And I said, okay. So I came home, told my parents, and they said, oh, that's cool. I did not own a, a sport coat or anything like that. So my dad had lent me his sport coat and a tie and uh, took Bart into San Francisco. He took me to this really nice uh, Italian restaurant in the financial district. And we're having this great, you know, order, like, what would you like? I have no idea. I mean. You know, <laughs> I'm 19. What do you I know? know? Like a burger. I mean. So he said, well, you know, try the, the, the veal. Piccata Limon or something. And I said, okay. And he said, what kind of wine would you like? I said, I'm 19. <laughs> well, and you're very boyish looking now yeah. to me. So you must have looked like you were 11 years yeah, old. Yeah, I think I, and I was small. So I said, I'm 19. I, I really don't drink much. So, uh, so you know, we had lunch and he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I'm really interested in, in politics and things like that. So, you know, get my degree and, and then go to law school and then go hopefully work in the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office and prosecute uh, bad guys gangsters and organized crime figures and all that. That's really because, well, the other thing is Robert F. Kennedy was my hero. So, so that was, you know, I think had was an effect Was he alive on me. then? 
No, he, he, I, he died 1968, and I had quoted him in my bar mitzvah speech. So I knew everything you could know about Kennedy's. What a loss, huh? Oh, my God. What an amazing – I mean, just – I mean, and I'd read so much about him. And he was sort of like me in a way. He was small. He had to push harder to get what he wanted, you know, kind of dedicated and clever. So I, I told this guy, I said, yeah, I want to do that and then go to work, you know, hopefully get a job in the U.S. Attorney's Office, be a, you know, AUSA and all that. He said, well, OK, so that's about – you know, six years from now, I said, yeah. I said, what do you think you'll make then? Well, I knew the answer to that because I'd already researched what how things would be. So I said, well, index for inflation um, in six years at <laughs> the have loved you. current inflation rate. <laughs> I said, you know, I should start at about $27,000, $28,000 a year. And he said, yeah, that's good money. I said, yeah. He said, what if we were to offer you a job to come work with us? And I said, okay, what would I do? I said, you would teach us what you're doing. And I said, okay. And I'm thinking this is like an hourly, you know, deal. Like, you know, they'll pay me like 15, you know, 15 like $7 an hour or something because that's been my reference as far as my jobs. <laughs> there you are in your sport jacket with your white shirt on. <laughs> yeah, He's exactly. offering you a job at 19. And yeah, he's offering me a job. He's to a grown-up man, right? Like oh, a, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And to come to work for this kind of top options, you know, firm in, in, in Wall, San Francisco's Wall Street. So I'm thinking, yeah, I, you know, sounds like a cool thing. And, and I go, so like, like, how much would you pay me? And seriously, I'm thinking since my last job was working at a place called Marcus Hardware in Oakland as a cashier during a strike. I got $4 an hour. Big so I'm thinking money. maybe I get $6, $7 an hour, which would be awesome. He says, well, I don't, I, I don't want to negotiate is what he says. I'm going to give you a number <laughs> and you take either you take it or you don't. I don't want back and forth. I don't – you know, either that's the number. I said, OK. He said, well, we'll start you at $50,000. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, I have no reference to what that number is, by the way. I literally don't. I what mean, year is this? <laughs> so funny. 1976. Wow. So I had, I had no idea what $50,000 made. My parents combined probably made $30,000. I mean, very middle class. It's so funny. I got a job in 1976 at Broadway Department Store, $9,000 a year. So it's a lot of <laughs> I money. totally it's understand. Oh, my God. It's, <laughs> it's, not, it's just not a number. It's like yeah. I said, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I said, that sounds reasonable. Okay. And yeah, it's like I said, oh, really? He goes like, really? I go, yeah, I, I think that's fair. By the way, and I was a good poker player. So he told me that, and I don't think I changed expression. I said, I was like this, and I'm like trying to wrap oh my, my mind. Oh, my God. I'm so proud of you. I didn't even know you. I'm so proud of you. I tried to wrap my mind around what this is. I'm so, yeah, I, th I think that would work. Mm -hmm. and, goes, and the guy's like relieved. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have to get you registered. I said, okay. I said, I'm a, I can read. I'm a speed reader. I digest information quickly. And uh, so I go home, and I, I tell my parents about this lunch, and I, and I kind of do it in stages. So, yeah, it was really cool. We went to this place. I had, I uh, had veal scallopini, <laughs> uh, lemon. It was really good. They offered me wine. My mom said, well, what did you say? I said, no, I didn't take any wine, mom. And then they offered me a job. And uh, they said, wow, so what would you? I said, well, I'd sort of teach them the kind of stuff I'm doing. They said, well, that's cool. And, uh, and then they said they offered me $50,000 a year. <laughs> I can't even imagine the look on your parents. What did they say? And my, my, my dad for sure couldn't relate to this. My dad managed a, a shoe store in downtown Oakland. My mom was an accountant at the East Bay Jewish Welfare Federation. And my mom could have had an idea what that was because I think that was more – significantly more than the mortgage on her house. And all she can think of saying – was, okay, but you need to stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only thing that comes to her mind. That's so funny. And I said, I'll give it a shot. 
So I started off at this firm and then I joined like the San Francisco Option Society and within three months, I was, they had me as a guest speaker and then all these bigger firms, big New York-based firms were, you know, kind of catching who I was. You still weren't old enough to order a drink at lunch. No. Yeah. I wasn't – I think I was just – so my first – Paycheck. I needed a car. I was still living at home, and you did have your driver's license. Oh yeah, yeah. I got my driver's <laughs> license at sixteen, and I had a car. And when I was seventeen, working and stuff like that, I had bought myself a BMW two thousand two for fourteen hundred dollars, which was so cool because nobody then knew what BMWs were, and it was just something I'd researched and and found it was inefficiently priced, and um, and so I'd always like you know loved kind of cars. I worked in a gas station, you know. I'd see like these really cool cars go by, like oh my god, that's a Porsche. Like, wow. So I get paid and I'm thinking, I guess I could get a Porsche. So I went and uh, started looking for used Porsches. I found one that was owned by one of the uh, members of this group, the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> and uh, and Which call- Doobie Brother was it? I just don't remember. You don't it was remember. a long ago. Okay. But um, so I go to you know meet him at his house in San Francisco and it's silver Targa 911S and it was like $11,000. And um, I'd already been to you – know, I had a bank account now and my banker, my banker, the bank says, oh, anything you ever need, Mr. Goad. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're happy to help you. You want a car? You want a house? You know, you know, because I think my first deposit was like six thousand dollars or wow. something. And um, so, so I want to buy this Porsche, no problem. So I bought it, and uh, you know, so I had a car. And, you know, and then I decided I'd need an apartment, and and all these things um, happened. So while all of my friends were going to college, like either Berkeley or Davis or UCLA. You know, I was working, and um, you know, five thirty in the morning at the at the office. I'd go to school late afternoon, and then weekends. You know, I'd hang out with my friends, and I'd always like pick up tabs. I mean, at twenty. I mean, it's funny. I was looking at my American Express card. Member since nineteen. 1977. Oh my God. I want to go backwards for a second. How did you have this special ability or this special insight and, and skill to create something that nobody else really knew how to do? How did you come to know about derivatives and, and using the computer? And you had your obviously your own special sauce. You're 19 years old. How did that come to be? I also want to know uh, while you're answering, are you an only child? No, I have a uh, younger brother and I had a younger sister. Were either of them, or I guess your brother, who I'm assuming your sister passed away, yeah. and is your brother any of them mathematically gifted like you? No, no, but no, nobody in my family like me. So your mother, who worked in a CPA's office, must have had some. She did. She had definitely had more, you know, numbers mm-hmm. orientation. My dad it was just this, just this wonderful salesman, a practical joker, just fun, funny, sweet guy. Did your parents know early on that you had this gift, this mathematical gift? Not really. In they knew I was very industrious when I was uh, in. God, I think I was. 14, I had a a racing car set that I built up in um, our basement. And when I say built up, I mean, it had little houses and people and lights and sounds. And it was really cool. I wish I'd had pictures of that. And I basically, and my brother sent me the box. I I was actually leasing my little racing cars to the neighborhood kids. For like, and I had cards that showed like the payments for like twenty five cents. That's hilarious. So you were industrious from way back. But you also understood yeah. that there was such a thing as a lease when you were. I know. Young How crazy kid. is that? That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Tw- yeah. I, I it was. You know. I was. You know. I was smarter. Looking back at it, I was really clever. So I'd buy these racing cars for three bucks. 
I'd spoof spoof them up, so I would you know add on to them and make them very cool. So I could probably I'd probably be into them for four dollars, and I would be leasing them for twenty five cents a month. <laughs> Making big big coin on that, yeah, literally. So, yeah, exactly, <laughs> big coins. And it was great for the kids. I mean, because it, so it was this really cool racing set, and for uh, like a, you know you could ba- getting a quarter is so not you put, that tough. You invested for you got back twelve. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, no. I mean, this is and used that to buy more, so you had like a whole thing of uh... yeah. So I had a big collection of cars, and and the racing this layout was so cool. I mean, it had it was on like felt, so it looked like it was on grass. I figured out if I broke a piece of fiberboard, the jagged edges, and I would paint them, it looked like rocks. And um, and then I basically figured if I had, and then I took a, a train transformer that has a, a dial. On it, and I used that to power what were called p lamps. These little lights that are about this big, and so I could adjust it for nighttime. Oh and wow! Yeah, it was really it cool. It's like a Talladega in your basement. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's oh, so cool. Yeah, it was super cool. So you had a nice, lovely, warm, intimate growing up in your with your oh, family. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I had we, we you know grew up in in Oakland. I mean you know we'd walk to school, we'd go on bike hikes. You know, um, grew up Jewish, so, and the Jewish community in Oakland is very small. Like you knew. If you said, oh, I know so-and-so in Oakland, he was Jewish, and he's anywhere in my age, it's likely we would know who they were. It was super small. It's um, so funny. This is totally a random comment, but I was in uh, – I was here for Yom Kippur, and I drove down into Beverly Hills on Yom Kippur, which I know I'm not supposed to do and blah, 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 but I did it anyway. <laughs> the sound was empty. I thought to myself, I don't think I realized how many Jewish people oh live in Beverly Hills oh, until I went down into into town the other day. <laughs> anyway, so so keep going. So you did – this now you're doing this this whole story is so interesting you're doing this you're working in this job you're still in school still in school you're, now you're 20 but, or 21 you still can't order a bottle of wine at the no. restaurant i still want to go backwards sure. how did you learn about derivatives and so my dad and- so i was interested so my dad you know at, at night would look at the stock pages the other thing so when i was 14 i think randomly i got picked to be a um, like a guinea pig for a speed reading program so through that training, if there was something I was interested in, I could I could absorb huge amounts of information quickly. And I there's a picture of me in the Oakland Tribune at 14, basically being interviewed. And it's it's a crazy number, but it was like I could read 80,000 words a minute. I could read a book in seven minutes and, and then answer questions about it. It was literally I could read as fast as I could turn the page. So anything that I was interested in, I would go to the Oakland Library. I'd check out seven books. I'd bring them home on Friday after school and on, you know, Monday I'd return them. And I've read all this stuff. So my dad, you know, was was like like reading the stock pages. So I started, I was interested in that. And then so I read books on that. And then I would go with him to his broker's office in Oakland and I'd watch the ticker tape and they'd all be talking, oh, look at that. And, and it was all really cool and interesting. And then my best friend who grew up a little wealth, a lot wealthier than me, but we were best friends and we were both kind of similar entrepreneurs characters. So his dad was buying muni bonds and we, for some reason, thought about corporates. And then we started looking at, because all you had then was what was called the bond guide. So we were buying single B and triple C bonds in 19, so we were 18 in 1974. For our on, listeners, that's basically junk. <laughs> yeah, totally junk yeah. at that yeah. th- with 30% margin. So our margin costs were about 13%, but the bonds were yielding like 18 
18, 19%. So we were getting 20 plus percent cash returns on our bonds and just dumb luck. You know, interest rates you know, kind of uh, peaked around then and then started coming down and our $30 bonds went to 50 and on 30% leverage, you know, like two and a half times our money. You made enough money to buy another Porsche. <laughs> no, I, this was before I, I went to work. This oh. was, this is, so at the same time, the CBOE had just launched the first series of options. So I basically read everything I could on options and then options were a reflection of like statistics. I was studying, taking statistics in school. So all of a sudden, like all these things kind of combined that all an option is, is just an ex, a statistical expression probability. And my statistics teacher said that I was naturally intuitive on statistics, that I could look at random sorts of numbers and make sense out of them and, and things like that. So just in this weird confluence, all these things came together. So options weren't that complicated to me. And then I was learned about a little about programming and, and I got a calculator. And then the first money I made, I bought a programmable calculator. And, and then I started you know using these things, reading about options and statistics and saying, oh, well, gosh, I mean, these things are not... You you know, appropriately priced. I mean, there's this is crazy uh, to do and came up with again. Then, you know, everybody was either buying an op, buying a call, there weren't even puts at that point, or buying stock and selling a call. And I said, well, that's kind of cool, but buying a call is the worst idea ever. So I came up with strategies of, you know, selling one call, buying two calls, which were then called back spreads because volatility was so mispriced. And and then I learned about how to express volatility in, in, with different kinds of options trades. And, and then again, I'm trading one or two options at a time. But they, they were, things were so crazy that the returns I was getting were nuts. And, right. So and the only – Like a $1 bet. Yeah. Oh, one, oh, it could make $4. And, yeah. And so, so I was doing a, this, you know, basically San Francisco options firm, you know, had the, they had a seat on the Pacific coast and they basically had a lot of press because they were an original, before the listed options were an original put and call dealer when there were over the counter options. So they were like na naturally in front. So when they would see the trades I was doing, their broker on the floor was basically saying, how, why is this, what's going on with this guy? How does he know to do this? And I need to do this and, and all that. And they kept on watching and watching. And so I think they figured 50 grand. I'll make that back in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, I got a lot of attention and I was and basically had just turned 20 and all these firms are taking me out to lunch and wanting to fly <laughs> me to New York. But you had to be 21 to be licensed by the New York Stock Exchange, which made sense. So again, these Kidder Peabody, oh, can we fly to New York? Uh, Blythe's Mandel and Bear Stearns, you know, not so much Goldman Sachs, uh, Solomon Brothers, all of every one of them because they would hear about me Good from- friend. Yeah, well, yeah, and John Goodfriend. So they'd all say, and then finally I said, yeah, I kind of felt I was reaching like my top at where I was, and 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 things like that. So I was open to it, but I said, listen, I can't do anything till next year. So I'm happy to listen, but you know, I'm doing what I'm doing, and I'm in decent life, you know, I'm making bucks. I have a car, and you know, and hanging out with my friends, and picking up tabs, and and you know, stuff. So this one firm, uh, Blythe's Mandillon, says we really want to have you now. I said, well, great. But I'm not. You can't have me. I can't be unlicensed. I've just worked hard to get this damn Series Seven six-hour test. So they basically 
since Chicago and California, Illinois and Chicago had the age of consent at 18, military age 18, Blythe went to the um, – Blythe's lawyers went to the SEC and to, I don't know, like a New York congressman or senator or something like that and said, this is arbitrary and this is not consistent with how it should be because if a guy can go basically get killed in Vietnam, which was gone, but he should be able to and – and he can vote, then he should be able to execute agreements. So six months or so later, I'm working at this firm and I get this call from this guy in New York saying, hey, we have a first class round trip airfare for you. We're just putting you up at the Waldorf and all that. And I want you to basically come fly out Sunday and I want to meet you on Monday. I said, OK, why not? Sure enough, all that you know comes. I don't think I'd been to New York yet and uh, meet with him on Monday. And he said the SEC basically has told the New York Stock Exchange to change the rule. You could be 18, which, by the way, in hindsight was a bad idea. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, not everybody is you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no rule made sense. Yeah, yeah. So now they it's like lots a bidding. of rules that don't make sense. So now there's a bidding war. I mean, I mean, literally every firm is flying me to New York like every week, you know, and because um, it, it goes out that if you're a you know, New York member firm sees the rules and they had all met me in San Francisco, Shearson, this guy, Joe Plameri, who ended up being Sandy Wiles. I mean, I talk, talking about hindsight, that's who I should have gone with. But I was loyal. Blythe was really the firm that kind of made this happen. So, you know, I went to go work for them. They made me like West Coast options director and number three in the firm's options department and uh, traveled all throughout the system giving lectures on options to people that were minimally 50% older than I was. And (laughs) I was definitely the only Jewish guy in in the office and nobody ever thought I was Jewish. Nobody still never thinks I'm Jewish. These firms were all white shoe firms. This was very white shoe. This was San Francisco, blue blood, you know, firm. But they didn't even think about it. I mean, Mm -hmm. so I basically had this crazy experience of traveling, speaking. Were you enjoying yourself? Yeah, I had a great time. You know, I was still too young. And, you know, again, I didn't have any that the college experiences. So I didn't really drink. I really didn't like I kind of went on dates, but I didn't have like any anything like girlfriends or anything like that. So you're 20 years old. Yeah. And now, you know, 20, getting you know, on my way to 21. And um, your parents must have been watching you with amazement. Yeah. So I, I you were sending home money. Well, actually, you know, it's funny. I remember like we would go to Lake Tahoe every summer. This all these families from the East Bay would go the same two weeks and, and go to Kings Beach. And I remember once my mom seeing a, a jaguar. And just how beautiful it was and and all that. And I was not good with like dates and things like that. So I figured the best thing to do is give my parents a collective birthday and anniversary present. So I bought them a Jaguar. Wow. Oh, my God. (laughs) I can't even imagine the experience of your 20-year-old son (laughs) saying, come outside and look at this thing I bought you. It's parked on the street. Yeah, silver Jaguar XJ6. Oh, did your mother start to cry immediately? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, it's did like your father didn't... say no, no, no? We can't accept something. No, like this? my dad was was just laughing. Wow. He, he just got a kick out. He of must it. have been <laughs> so proud of you. And well, and it's so funny. And as as is my career kind of, and then yeah, you know, I had huge ups and downs. I'd make a ton of money, lose a lot of money, make a ton of money, and never include for my entire life have been attached to money. It's it's just like a thing. No, it's the mental game. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just a thing. It's just like, you know, I don't you – know, I've never – I've made huge amounts of money. I've had crazy experiences. But even like 
like when I moved to New York and then things really are going well. I took I took a year off. I just got burned out. I just, you know, made bad decisions, did shitty things and took a year off and then was very involved in politics. I worked on uh, Gary Hart's first presidential campaign in 1983 in California. Monkey business? That was the time before. Oh. Monkey, monkey business was 88, 87, 88. This was when he literally he was running against Walter Mondale. He should have beat him and he didn't. But it was an gr- amazing experience. And, and through that, I met three guys. I met Ted Sorensen, who um, was John F. Kennedy's speechwriter. And um, I saw him interviewed on 60 Minutes. I'll never forget it. You must have been like capering at the thought of asking him questions and hearing. Oh, my God. And I was such a Kennedy fan. And I remember meeting him at a Gary Hart event before I decided what I was going to move to New York. I was just there. And he came out with Gary. So whenever Gary would come, I would like pick him up at the airport. And I had, by the way, and then I had a Mercedes Benz. I had, a, I had a four-door, it was a beautiful car, four-door Mercedes six, 6.9 engine, 300 SEL. But because of the times, Gary didn't want to be moved around in a Mercedes, so I'd have to you know swap cars. A with Taurus? A, well, <laughs> I didn't have Tauruses then, but like a Ford or something like that. So I'd pick Gary up, and then one time, you know, I, they said, hey, one of Gary's uh, you know key people, Ted Sorensen's coming to San Francisco for a And of course, I know who he is. That's not what your country do for you. I mean, oh my God, I knew everything about Ted Sorensen, and turns out he was born in the same place my mom was. Still Lincoln. alive? No, he died a few years ago. So I picked him up at the airport, and it turns out like he was asking me about me and my thing, and I said, like, what are your favorite things you've done? I said, well, my absolute favorite job was I had taught tennis at a club med. And he said, oh, you're a tennis player. I said, yeah, well, we got to play tennis. I said, okay, so if you ever come to New York, like, here's my card, and I think I still have his card, like Te- Theodore Sorensen, p- partner Paul Weiss, and I'm going, okay, sure, <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. And then I take him around and it was really amazing. And I just, you know, I had to be, I didn't want to like, oh, what was it like being with John F. Kennedy? Because I was just like, I just didn't want to do that. But he was so nice. And when I decided to move to New York, I reached out to him and I called his office and his secretary, does he know you? I said, well, I met him through Gary Hart. And he said, well, a lot of people, anything else? He said, well, we talked about tennis. Four minutes later, I get a call from him. <laughs> so Matt, welcome to New York. Uh, what are you doing on Tuesday morning? And I go, uh, I don't know, work. So well, we play tennis at the over in Queens into this like chemical chemicals factory courts or whatever down below. I said, why don't you, you know, let's, you know, would you, why don't you come along? I said, yeah, of course. So we became friends, actually pretty good friends. We played tennis. We'd, you know, get together for meals, politics, all that stuff. And then I got to know, which was the other amazing experience, knowing everything about the Kennedys. So one of the other people I met in San Francisco at that time through another friend was a guy named George Skakel and his aunt was Ethel Kennedy. And, and he, and he was a conservative yeah, Ethel Skakel married um, Bobby Kennedy. Right. So Ethel was his aunt. So she was a Skakel. Yeah, it was his aunt, his mom's sister. And the Kennedys were his what first year cousins. Are we in now? This is like 83, 84. Ethel was married to Bobby, and she, when he died, she was in her 30s, I think. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. They had 11 kids or something like that? They had 11. A uh, few of them are gone. So uh, I think there's eight, eight or nine of them left. Is she still alive? Yeah. I, I've, She's outlived some of her I've, children? I have a picture of her and I from the summer. No kidding. Oh, yeah. that's so sweet. Yeah, which is great seeing her. So George says, you know, well, you know, all the my crazy liberal cousins, you know, he's like very Greenwich, Connecticut, <laughs> you know, like, oh, I can't. She's the black sheep. I said, would you ever hang out? Oh, like I avoid them. But, you know, I'm friendly with yeah. them. But you know, no, not really. Yeah, real red bloods, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he introduces me. Introduces me 
me to um, his cousin Kathleen Kennedy, who is Bobby's oldest daughter. And then through the, her, I get become friends with her and then uh, her brother Joe, who runs for Congress. And then I'm basically Joy's, Joe's point guy in New York and I'm in Hyannisport and I have a boat and I'm sleeping in the Kennedy house. And all of these are pinch me experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm like I'm in Hyannisport looking at all this family stuff, like things I've read about. I've seen pictures of Hyannisport. So I you're mean, out of the options business. No, well, so I'm I'm now I've moved to New York. I've basically become a partner at a firm called Guilford Securities, which was known for short sale research, which kind of fit my personality. Before I that, I had um, I get, basically got OD'd on the on the brokerage business, and it just was you know, and that's how I met Andy at Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. And after that, I was just kind of like you know just some good experiences, some bad experience. And I said, I just kind of took a break. And then I went to work for a guy who wrote market letters, really real character named Richard Ney. And he was an old time actor. He was famous for marrying Greer Garson. And he had a view that the markets were controlled by the specialists on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And if you could figure out what they do, you can make money. And he he wrote a best-selling book. I think it was called The Wall Street Jungle or Wall Street Gang, ridiculed by the establishment. This guy knows nothing but craziest calls ever. Like IBM is going to go to 152.45. It wasn't even 45. 152 and a quarter. And it will stop there and it will go to 147 or 147.75. Super specific. Oh, yeah. Bam. Happens. The market is going to top out at Dow 847.50 in the next 10 days. He's on like TV and he has a market letter. Bam. Happens. I mean, just continually. And so, and I'm watching this, and I'm, and he, so he wants to learn the options business. He wants to take options, so he needs somebody to teach him options, so he can take what he's doing on his in his market letter, create an options letter to go with it, to become really action oriented, and pay basically me nothing to do it. And he was in in Pasadena, so I said, you know what, this could be interesting, and I could learn something because I knew nothing about, I didn't know nothing about technical analysis. I just saw charts. I mean, whatever. And so, in my time with him, I basically objectified his approach. And sure enough, the stuff that he had taught me, and again, I've been in the press for years on making these crazy calls, like this is a buy then, the market's going to do this then. And it's all based on what I would call how you can understand investor behavior. And that was basically what the specialist did. So the specialist knew that if the stock went from here to here, people would buy it and then it would go from here to there. So what they would do is they could basically just kind of push it up to here without, you know, you know without using a lot of volume. Can't do, really do that anymore. Well, it's no. So you don't have a special system, but a lot of the behavioral aspects right. are still there. That, yeah. that how people trade at round numbers. Here's the best one: Economics 101. You learn that the best way to create demand is reduce the price of a product. As simple as it gets. But in the stock market, when you when price is reduced, supply increases, not demand. Yeah, people get nervous. They get, oh my God, get me out. I'm going to lose all my money. Exactly. And the inverse, when prices go up, people buy. And then there were these like things, well, it's all about volume. Oh, well, you know. And, and so there was this joke where the broker would call his client and say, I have good news and bad news. The good news is, uh, well, the bad news is your stock went from 20 to 10. God, that's awful. What could be the good news? It did it on light volume. Um, <laughs> 
I can't tell you how many conversations I've had on that subject. So all these conventional thinking that basically Wall Street did, he was very, he was virulently anti-Wall Street, anti-establishment. He'd talk about the Trilateral Commission. I mean, he was a little nuts. But I think he was nuts because he found and he was able to show it and prove it to me how things actually worked, how the specialist system worked, how stocks actually, what made stocks go up and down. had nothing to do with interest rates, the economy, earnings, none of that stuff. It was basically stimulating supply and demand. And then you would look at these charts. And I just remembered like the weirdest thing was like RCA. There's a name out of the past. Yeah. From like 1925 to 1980 and looked at this long-term chart. And every major move in RCA, you could measure the angle of ascent. It was always 35 degrees, okay? And and you could measure that when volume got to X, you know, a certain like uh, above the average volume, that basically that was the final, the blow-off move and the change in direction would be 90 degrees to that. And it would go to a price of where the 20-degree line went to that. I mean, it was like a sci-fi movie. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a numbers guy and, you know, all the other stuff about the Trilateral Commission and the Rockefellers, all that was like over my head. But when I started looking at the, how these patterns continually worked and, and testing it and all that, I was absolutely convinced as I am now, it's not a special system, but there is a way of charting and looking at the opposite of how human behavior is. And so for years, you know, on Wall Street, I was written up as a contrarian. CNBC called me their favorite contrarian. And whenever there was like something I saw that was significant, you know, they'd interview me or I'd have a clip or something like that. And, you know, there were probably 10 segments of me saying this is what's going to happen. It happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And wh- and it's all that. And again, I don't I don't have a background of economics. I'm, I just understand that if it was easy to make money in the stock market. And if you followed all the things that your firms tell you to do, then everybody would outperform the market. But since they don't, since 2% of the people outperform the market of best, then there has to be an issue with the component of the analysis and the behavior to get to that point. Yeah. So if everybody goes to Harvard Business School or Stanford Business School and they all read the same books and they all go through the same training and they're all taught that if this happens, this will be good and this will be the markets and they all do that thing, just basically market theory will tell you that, that it won't work. What happens is it works for periods of time and that people gets people comfortable that, oh, it's, it's, it's called – I call it a false positive. It's basically, oh, well, I'm getting validation that I bought this and it went up, so I'm right. And, and then – but unfortunately, when things change, you don't have a, a way of understanding why that's happened and what to do. Now, so, people – there's so many people in the, having been in the money business now for 30 years. It's amazing to me how people think about wealth and making money in the markets and the – Inevitably, the mistakes that they make. It's, it's, which it's, you listen, but I, I want to talk about your. So, yeah, so okay. th- this, that's, my, that's this enough story, of my by the yeah. way, is fantastically interesting, and we could do an entire yeah, episode oh, on this because I love this. Um, I want to go back to your. So you you have one foot in finance and one foot in politics. In politics, yeah, absolutely. And what you're working on now is so compelling. That I really want to dive into this. If you're, if you yeah, no, I think it's fantastic. Please, I am. I, I had an opportunity to meet you and talk to you about this. Um, Andy put us together, and yeah, um, Andy's been very supportive of me. It's a uh, timely venture, and w- with some hope, you know, what you're working on will change the world. But this brings us to what you're doing today. Are you working at all in finance anymore? No, I, this has been a very expensive five months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet, right? Yeah. 
So to start at the beginning and talk about what your interest in gun control and, you know, your, your points of view on this are. You know, I'm a, I consider myself a moderate Democrat. I'm not a far left person. I don't think everybody should have everything for free. I mean, I, I would put myself, you know, go, going back 20 years, the difference between a moderate Democrat and a moderate Republican was, n- was non-existent. There wasn't yes. any daylight in between those two people. No, it was basically the same thing. It's May- the same thing today. I think people who most, most people yeah, live in the middle, they hopefully. lean a little bit in each direction, but it's the periphery that is causing and that's war. and that way and that basically tilts it's it's a barbell and unfortunately if you think of a, of a of a weight bar it's bent basically bent with the two edges pushing it down and pushing us down as a society yeah. so you're a uh, Kennedy Democrat which really a, John, you- yeah John Kennedy Robert Kennedy I loved Ted Kennedy and we were friends but even Ted was a little more progressive than my politics were but what I liked about Ted was his belief that that he needed to be there to speak up for those that couldn't speak for themselves. Right. And you could not push him off of something he believed now, in. No, this was a very strong Kennedy thematic. And yeah. when he was diagnosed with what now John McCain has died from, my brother died from the same disease when oh, he was sorry. diagnosed with that. It was surprising that he lived as long as he did with a glioblastoma because usually the timelines are briefer than they are. But these this family has dedicated their life to. And the same with the kids. Yeah. But look at Eunice and Bobby and, and all. I mean, it's just They're a remarkable all. family. Yeah, and the, and the next generation that I'm close to, I mean, Carrie Kennedy, RFK Human Rights. Rory is a documentary film producer. Max has has written books. Uh, Dougie is a assistant uh, district attorney. Um, And then the grandkids. Joe's son is a a congressman now who's amazing. Just what an amazing guy that he is. And I I love that image that you give of the barbell and pushing down on both sides because John McCain was a lot like Ted Kennedy in the sense that they were were buddies and they would both push and and stand for in, t- in integrity. Yep. The sides, the the extremes are pushing no, the culture down. No, I mean you've you've got Elizabeth Warren over here. You've got Ted Cruz over here. So we're, we're talking about this topic that is so timely. Have you always been interested in the topic of gun control? Yeah, and I mean, I've always, I've always believed, and and even kind of going back again, seeing like my idols shot down that too many guns, you know, with too many people. Too easy to get. And I think there was this huge change with Charlton Heston. I mean, the NRA up until then was basically gun safety, hunting, like field and stream. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, fine. But Charlton Heston and, and you had this major change of don't pry this gun from my dead cold, cold fingers. Cold dead hands. Cold dead hands. Yeah. And so then all of a sudden the NRA becomes the Second Amendment perverter. And with that becomes the gun culture thou explodes. Before we go on, to all of our listeners that hear you say the Second Amendment, please explain what you're talking about. So the so Second Amendment, um, basically written, closing in on, on 300 years ago, basically says that the people shall uh, ha- have the right to bear arms. No, there should be no law to restrict the people to, to, to basically bear arms. And you know, again, I don't consider myself a constitutional scholar, but you know, in the time that was written, and it talks about the, a, a well-armed militia in the Second Amendment as well, you know, we didn't have standing armies. 
We basically, you know, the redcoats are coming. I go grab my musket. You go grab your musket. And 10 of us all basically, you know, f- form a line to basically stop the, mm-hmm. the Brits. Mm-hmm. That was basically how things happened in, in, the, in the late 1700s. So a standing army is defined as an organized uh, body of people who are in the military today, which we do have standing and then some, armies today. Yeah, and then some. Yeah, we have, we have the most powerful military in the world. So the re- reasoning behind this was that you should basically, you know, because our government was uh, young and at risk and could be overturned and all these other things, is that it would be up to you and I to protect our country and democracy. And so that was the origination of that law. And even so, it talks about, you know, the people. The people, you know, from what I've read in pieces is a collective term. The, the framers use the word people. They use the word persons. And they don't use them interchangeably. They have different meanings. People is a collective group of people. We the people. You and I, you, all those. It's not you the person should have a gun. To do what you want with. It's we the people. Like at the beginning of the Constitution, we the people shall have these things. So the Second Amendment basically was written to give American citizens a, a right to, to maintain weapons as a way of protecting our infant government against you know bad guys. And over time, it basically was that. And then, you know, we were a, a kind of a rural country, you know, so hunting and things like that, which, you know, became part of how you survived. And all those things, you know, kind of kept it. And then, not that not long ago, it was basically become, well, you have a right to any weapon that you want. You, you want to have a, whatever it is, you can have it. In, in the 30s, since we had this gun culture and there was no restriction on weapons, you know, the gangster days, um, if you remember the movies with the guy, the, the gangsters with the great suits and the Tommy guns, mm-hmm. Thompson machine guns, would basically just decimate law enforcement because law enforcement were working with basically six shot revolvers and maybe a shotgun and maybe a, a one, you know, pump uh, rifle. So they're, they're totally Totally outgunned. So in 1934, the federal government basically enacted through Congress what was called the National Firearms Act, NFA. And the NFA basically said that if you wanted to have one of these fully automatic weapons, you had to have it licensed and pay a license fee. Now, if you're a gangster and you have that gun, I mean, are you going to go <laughs> to your local police department? Right. No, of course not. So, But then again, so that was the crime that was easy to prosecute. It was like Al Capone on tax evasion. Forget all the people he killed and the banks he robbed and the, all the other awful things that he did. They got him on tax evasion. So the National Firearms Act basically kept fully automatic weapons out of the population's hands. And that was a great idea. And that over time had added other weapons of war, it added silencers, adds hand grenades. And it's been in existence and has been uncontested and enforced since, since then. So to make sure we understand this, in 1934, when this law was put in place, it was in an effort to allow the the um, police and, and those people to arm themselves to be equal to these people that were running roughshod and didn't require licenses. Take and get, their weapons away. And get those yeah. people to get licenses take, or take, take their them weapons. Away. Take their weapons away. They made it so. So the intent of that of that at that time seemed like a reasonable intent. Public safety. Public safety. Absolutely. Public right. safety. And if you're a police officer, you know, and, and you know, you you've got again, you have a six shot revolver, which you know, bam, 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 and then you got to reload it, and you got a guy who's got a forty round Thompson Tommy machine gun. gun, Tommy gun, who basically can you plows. know, yeah, just, just plows through all of you. So that law was put in, it worked, and we now are basically in still a gun culture, hunting in rural parts of of America. You know, people have pistols under their pillow and things like that. Because police response time. And that's where we were until we get to 
whatever, 20 plus years ago, where now it's, that's just not enough. And gun control, as there's more crime in in cities and, and guns are now become way prevalent and gun-related violence is up and all these ideas of how to restrict ownership of, of weapons, whether it's registration or background checks or all these things or, or bringing guns back in, now the NRA goes to where you're going to make sure that doesn't happen. And that's where Charlton Heston and this whole change starts. And Wayne LaPierre running it also made a huge impact on Huge. It. Yeah, huge. Do you want to talk a little bit about that from your perspective? So basically, now you have an alliance with the uh, and, and we and, and in, in our in our project we rarely discuss the NRA. We prefer you know we don't want to personalize it because NRA members and NRA senior management are two different things. Yes. You know it's 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 like saying all Russians are, are killers and and Putin is. So the NRA management finds that there's a really cool opportunity for them is in alliances with the gun manufacturers. So they form entities that they can take money in from gun manufacturers to pro, to. Pro basically protect them. And they create a uh, 501c4, a, a, a nonprofit, and the nonprofits are all for education and advocacy and, and all that. Who creates the 501c4, the NRA? NRA? The NRA, yeah. So they have... What year are we in now? So this is probably now maybe eight, 80s yeah. or so. So the NRA basically now has taken on, we will protect and defend any change in gun laws. And, we're, and then John F. Kennedy gets killed, Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, gun. Now it's protected. No, it's, 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 there's, there's just this consistency of you are entitled to guns via the Second Amendment and it's perverted. Regardless of what kind of guns you are It doesn't matter, except, except for automatic weapons. Automatic weapons are – fully automatic weapons are covered by the National Firearms Act. So you can't have a Tommy gun or a 50 cal or a Uzi or any of those things legally. Those are, are – that's a federal crime to have those. Um, but So to be clear, the National Firearms Act – prevents people from owning guns that are fully automatic. Yes. So when we see today people with, and forgive my ignorance, I'm asking this question possibly incorrectly, but when you see somebody with an Uzi, is that not fully automatic? Yeah, of course it is. It is. But yeah. you see people with them. How do they get them? So you can't buy them legally. So, you know, there's a decent, you know, obviously black market and, and you know, Uzi's made in Israel, you know, Israel technology. So you can acquire them, but you're not acquiring them legally and right. you don't have a license to acquire them. And you're not, and nor a license to own them. And nor a license to own them. Okay. Right. So, you, um, I mean, people have them in collections though. Even if you have it in collection, you still have to register and pay taxes. You have to inform the government that I have this weapon. And by the way, you can do that. But in doing that, there are all sorts of other rules that you have to obey. You can't even take that weapon across the street. You have to notify the ATF that I have what's called an NFA weapon and I'm thinking of moving it. I'm thinking about moving it to my lake house. So you have to get approval for that. And you may not get it, and it may not be for mm -hmm. six months. And if you do it and you get caught, it's a felony. You go mm -hmm. to jail. That's how it should be. So the laws are tough. There are people that have 50 caliber machine guns, but they're so restricted. You can't buy them. I don't, you probably can't even transfer them now. But if you have it, you just have to file the paperwork. Mm -hmm. Isn't it true that there are something like 
400 million guns in America, some crazy number like that, that there's more than one gun for every human being that lives in America? It's possible when you think about handguns, rifles, shotguns. So so the weapon we are the most interested in is the AR-15. So the, the AR-15 was designed by a company called Armor Light. So AR is not assault rifle. It's, it means it's from the company Armor Light. And Armor Light designed this weapon for the military to basically be the next uh, evolution in a military, you know, grade weapon. But the military wasn't quite ready for it yet. So they started selling them to the public. And this is a long time ago, like maybe even the late 50s. So then they sold them and it was a cool, you know, it was a very cool looking weapon. I mean, if you're into guns, it's, it's cool. And, you know, it's good for sporting. I mean, you go out, it's not a hunting weapon. It's more maybe to go out in your backyard and, you know, shoot cans or things like that. And it's what's called semi-automatic as opposed to fully automatic. And semi-automatic means that you have a, a magazine of we'll say 30 rounds, and you can fire that individually, just bam, 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 until you empty the round. A, a fully automatic weapon would be you push the sh- trigger down and it empties the magazine. So they basically, so that weapon gets out into the public, and then um, it is acquired by Colt, Armor Light. They're just not succeeding. And then that weapon does become the M16, which is now the military-grade rifle for basically everyone. Is it the same weapon? So it's the same weapon with the only exception is the firing mechanism is for military, they add what's called a, a select fire and a fully automatic fire. And select fire means that you could basically flip a little switch and hold the trigger down and it fires three rounds like instantaneously, like a thing. And then you basically flip it again and it fires all rounds. But nobody in the military rarely uses it in a fully automatic because it's very difficult to control. Um, most, it jumps back. When oh, yeah. It yeah, goes all over the yeah. place. I mean, you're thinking thinking of a, like a jackhammer. Just the physics. Of it. Yeah, jackhammer is basically going like this. And, so the you velocity, know. the bullets coming out so fast, makes the makes yeah exactly. The so the gun's going all over the place. It's not. It's you just. It's rarely used in automatic, uh, and even in select fire, it's rarely. It's generally used as a semi-automatic weapon. So it becomes the M16, and the only difference between the M16 and the AR15 is this degree. And and even like like you know, I'll walk around like when I was in New York, and I'll see like the counterterrorism guys, and they will literally have an AR15, and I'll ask them, well, does it? Do? No. This is the exact same weapon that you can buy. It does, and, it, and even for the for the guys in counterterrorism, they're not fully automatic because fully automatic is like sprays bullets and 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 all that, and it's not precise. So the AR-15 basically becomes the mass shooting weapon of choice. Eighty percent of mass shootings from Sandy Hook, Pulse nightclub, Las Vegas, and Parkland, and Columbine, and all these others are the AR-15. The AR-15 is the optimal weapon for mass shootings. You can load a lot of rounds into it. It's basically it's a powerful weapon. It's basically an what I call an organ lacerating round. It's not like getting hit with a nine millimeter handgun or maybe knocks you over. And you can shoot without ceasing because it just is. Yeah, you just keep on going like this. You just, boom, as, boom, as, boom, as long boom, as you boom, just boom. keep on pulling the trigger, it won't. It generally won't jam because it's not automatic. It's just, you'll just you, so you can empty that thirty round magazine in as long as you push a trigger. Oh and you're blowing people's bodies up when you're. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The velocity. These are these are very high, you know, high velocity rounds that are designed for basically killing people. This is not a. It's not for hunting. It's basically it's a it's a design to kill people. It was an M M16. So and it seems to be so popular. I mean, it's a terrible, horrible word to use, but it's well, it got more popular after these. 
terrible hugely popular events. i think there i mean i've heard numbers of six eight million of these things out there it could be 10 million i mean it could be 12 million i'm not you know it's t- tough to tell so it's a hugely popular and people weapon. buy bullets like they're buying a pack of gum it's true too and they buy the magazines and again so so it accomplishes what it, it's, it's set out to do which is you know killing as many people as quickly and as efficiently as possible this the design of the weapon but to, again to be fair more people are killed with handguns i mean by a huge amount because there are more handguns you can put them under your coat you know it's it's an easy weapon to have and used and transfer and buy and sell i mean you know a, a assault rifle is, is you know has some size i didn't to it. realize that so you're saying that more people are shot with handguns oh yeah it's a long value. tail it's a long tail Right, right. But but here's the difference between handguns and and this weapon. Is and let's use Las Vegas as an example. So when this guy basically went up to the whatever floor in, in Mandalay Bay and decided he wanted to shoot people, a he secured what was called a bump stock. So a bump stock is think of a bump stock is you're going to get gas in your car. So you could basically hold that lever while you're pumping it, or you can put that little thing on and it'll keep it going at the, at the right. gas pump. So think of a bump stock is similar to that. It's basically it's like a little wedge that gets into the firing mechanism that turns it to fully automatic. What would anybody ever possibly want to design something like that? Because they for? want to kill people. Yeah, it's because it's a great way of, of basically circumventing the automatic weapon use of. Uh, and by the way, the state of Colorado, just to, 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 to digress for a second, had a had a bill in the in the Colorado state legislature to outlaw bump stocks, and it failed. So we call Colorado the gun nutteries. That's, they put this on the ballot to eliminate the bump the, stock. Uh, just a bump stock that basically creates to make a, them stop being able to sell them. You can't yeah, buy them, pass. outlaw them, and it, and it failed. It, it didn't pass. There, there were more that, that opposed it because said, well, for like a handicapped person that can't quite pin the trigger. I mean, it's just yeah. So this is some of the craziness you deal with when you're talking about guns. You're talking about craziness. You're talking about sophisticated people, educated people saying, "I have this weapon because when the goes down." I want to. I'm there. You want me to have that weapon? No. I want the Marine to have that yeah, weapon. You. I want you to do what the government tells you to do. Right. <laughs> so, so your organization, Families versus Assault Rifles. How did that? So I was really, really sad when I watched what happened six years ago up in uh, Sandy Hook, and it was just—it just broke my heart. Oh, Kids and and the little teacher, children. children and the teachers who put themselves in the way of, of of this awful thing. And I started watching it more, and I said, "Okay, well, God, if you can't get anything done now," and so yeah, they came up with a background check law. Um, Mansion to me failed, and and then some people think that it's not true. Yeah, is oh, this oh whole. Oh, it never uh, happened. Van Conspiracy. Yeah, an- yeah the, the sort of the confluence of that terrible event and the, you know, the rise of YouTube created even more sort of mischief and doubt. And it's heartbreaking. Oh, I my God. Heartbreaking. Relatives who have friends who believe it didn't happen. And it's I, just unreal. I know people whose children were in the class. They fortunately didn't lose their kids, but I knew people who had kids in that class. So I just went back and said, I need to talk to your friend. It's yeah. And crazy. I've worked and I've worked with uh, the person that did our PR, did, did the PR for, for you know, Sandy Hook. And I've met with them. I was with them at March for Our Lives and, and all that. And, and so that what they went through. And then so 94 
after 101 California shooting, and I might have been Aurora or Columbine, Senator Feinstein, who had just gotten elected, basically took this on as a signature issue for her. And so she basically created the assault weapon ban of 1994 federal law. And because it was... I don't. I have huge respect for Senator Feinstein and, and all that she's done and devoted her career. But in her pursuit of doing this, she instead of taking a more simpler approach, which was amending a current law that has all these restrictive properties, she decided it was important for a lot of reasons that a new law be introduced and specific just to this. And because it was that, she had to negotiate a sunset provision of it for 10 years. And again, I'm sure in her mind in 1994, you know, Clinton was president, Gore was vice president, you would have figured in 2000, Gore would be president and the Democrats would stay in power and that would get reenacted. And, you know, and in any case, so that law took place and and for 10 years, you had a significant reduction in crimes committed by these kinds of weapons. Why did she put an expiry? She had her reasonings on why she took this path. Were you involved or interested in this at that time? No. So you're interested in this has come later. Yeah. Six years ago. Yeah. So you've been watching this disgusting behavior. Exactly. In 1994, I'm living in Lake Tahoe. I have a air pellet gun that I'm practicing shooting at a buoy with. That's the extent of my okay. issue with weapons. So you wouldn't, you, there wasn't personal to you at that point? No, really. And then when Sandy Hook happened, it was like it really resonated. What year did Sandy Hook happen? Six years ago, 2012. So Obama was in office. Yeah. And nothing had nothing major had happened. Columbine happened before 90s. Sandy Hook, right? Yeah, 90s, 90s, yeah. 90s. 97? Yeah, And I think did they so. go in with assault rifles? Yeah. Yeah, same weapon. Yeah. AR-15. Same weapon. It's yeah. always the same. So... Feinstein tried to get her bill renewed. It had expired in 2004. It lost 40 to 60. Senator Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, Toomey, a Republican from, I think, Pennsylvania, basically came up with a background checks law. It failed. And so at that point, it kind of hit me that no matter what, you're never going to get any any change in gun legislation. The NRA is a frigging octopus. And, and they, they're doing this because of reasons that are com- seem completely abstract to money. any of us sitting it's in this money. room. It's all about money and power. Power. It's, slipper, it's a slippery – I call and, it the slippery slope syndrome. But how have they become so powerful? I read a statistic yesterday in anticipation of seeing you today that there are less than 3 million participants in uh, – that are involved in the NRA. Less than that. And, you know, this is a country of, I don't know, 280 million people, 300 million people. I've heard the number is five to six million, but it's a, it doesn't matter. It's not. It's, it's an one insignificant or 2%. number of people. So how do they hold so much sway over something that 100 million people in the country would be completely opposed to? I think also there are more gun owners than NRA members. Oh, of so course it's about there are. gun ownership and the feeling of safety or fear. It really Absolutely. comes down to fear for so many Absolutely. So, you know, we live in the cities and God forbid, you know, somebody's knocking on your door, breaking in your house, you hit 911 and whether it's LAPD, Sheriff, Beverly Hills, it's going to be there within minutes five minutes. So you have a sense of security. You don't need to keep a weapon in your house. And by the way, the statistics of people that have weapons in their house when confronted with weapons, it doesn't go well because you don't have the training. I mean, police officers, when they're confronted in live fire issues, don't do well. And they go to the range every week. They've been trained. Why isn't this a more important issue? Why isn't 
this being talked about more? So the politics of it is is that the NRA has basically 99% of their money, there's like I think 1% has gone to Democrats, has gone to Republicans. And they tend to be Republicans in like Ted Cruz and I think Marco Rubio and, and these, you know, somewhat rural, more rural and less urban states where they can have an effect and they can appeal to gun owners and, and we're, you know, watch out for so-and-so, he's going to take your guns away. And so they've been very good on their advertising and on their messaging and on the amount of money that they raised politically. They spent, I think it was $30 million to elect Donald Trump. But the gun ownership in America is probably not divided by party. There are 100 no. million guns in, in the country. Um, so, so if you think about – if you want to talk about politics for a second. So most – so Democrats tend to be more located around major urban areas. So obviously blue states, New York – Illinois, California, mm-hmm. Massachusetts, New Jersey. You know, you think about those big states who tend to be more urban states, which have less gun ownership. There's a really interesting study. In 2015, basically they did a study of what they called the percentage of gun violence and issues in states that had what they called 21st century gun laws, which is mostly California, Massachusetts, and all those, and states that didn't, which is basically the South and Kansas and places like that, and incidents per capita, and the numbers are staggering. I mean, so the NRA says, well, regulating guns isn't going to do anything. So what we've learned, unfortunately, over the last two years is that the forceful avoidance of facts is resonant is that if you say something that isn't true long enough, loud enough, and often enough, people believe it. And it's always been a thing in advertising to do this, but it's for commercial reasons. But now we've now gone to it in political reasons. And people say, well, everybody in politics lies. That is such a, a difference of degrees. So what's accepted now is the avoidance of facts. So the NRA in that scheme, oh, well, you know, like look at Chicago, look at all the gun crimes in Chicago. And it tells you right now that gun laws don't work. And that's just not a fact. The facts are that states that have no or minimal gun laws have much by multiples higher incidence of gun-related issues, you know, uh, victims and things like that. So laws actually do work. The idea of creating powerful disincentives to own and carry guns is actually effective. On our issue, which is very focused, our issue is that we don't, we're not taking on the Second Amendment. You know, the, the courts have ruled in the Heller ruling that you have an individual right to weapons. However, four federal courts have determined that basically semi-automatic assault type rifles are not covered as a Second Amendment issue. Seven states have passed, including California, assault weapon bans and bans on extended ammunition magazines and bump stocks. And so our three issues are those, is to basically not ban, but to restrict just as machine guns are restricted, you know, amend the National Firearms Act to include these weapons and these magazines and these bump stocks. So which would, in effect, make it illegal to buy them. The ability to manufacture and sell these things disappears. You can, that's gone. So then you're left with all the ones that are out there, and then those would basically be subject to registration and taxes. So, and, the, and you're trying to correct this at the federal level. Yeah, we're, exactly. So how is it going? 
So, you know, we've raised some money. We're working on a couple initiatives. Um, we've, we're about to announce shortly our relationship with the uh, National Teachers Union because what people don't realize is they think about the students and all these other people that are shot up, and they don't really talk about the teachers who put themselves between the gunmen and the kids. Oh, it's got to be. So, so we had a gr- great, really great meeting a month ago with the uh, president of, of the American Federation of Teachers, about 2 million members. So we're going to be working with them shortly. We're just finalizing it now, which will be a call to action for them to be supportive of us and for us to basically oppose in federal races that we have the capital to do it, candidates that that oppose uh, common sense gun laws. Right. And so you capture the people who do own guns who want that common sense because they really don't have a public voice right now. Right. So I read the other day in the New York Times about marking bullets to being tracked. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's a cool idea. Is it help? Is it work along the lines of what you're talking about? Or if you steal a weapon, it just helps you to find out who owns yeah. those bullets, right? Yeah, but but again, you know, if you have all these weapons out there and and bullets as well, to me, it makes a it's it's a great idea. Any idea is a good idea that that restricts these things. But I think until you get your arms around the actual weapons and restrict the weapons, get them, you can't buy the weapons. You have to register the weapons and force the laws and create powerful enough disincentives to basically saying, hey, you have an AR-15 and you didn't register it, you've committed a felony. So can you take however long you want to take and be very clear to our listeners about what you want to have, what kind of help you want? Obviously, it's financial. I mean, this is purely a, a dollars game. The more capital we have, the more we can be involved potentially in midterm races opposing candidates that think that your ownership of a of a weapon of war is more important than the safety of your children. We have no issue with the Second Amendment. If you want to have a, a, a handgun, a shotgun, rifle, any of those things, go for it. It's your your that's your thing. But the ownership of military-type weapons, weapons that vets who, when interviewed, say should not belong in civilian hands, it's it's likely that you will agree with us and you don't own these weapons. And if you do, you'll say, why do I have these weapons? So our goal is to restrict those and with it extended ammunition uh, magazines that basically allow someone to fire off 30 rounds or more. So by restricting the size of the magazine to potentially eight rounds and then also restricting bump stocks, which can converts a semi-automatic weapon to a fully automatic weapon, which has no purpose at all, is what we're trying to do and trying to do it via through Congress. And, and our hope is that the next Congress will take this on and, and likely will be a Congress that will be uh, supportive of this issue, pass it and put it in um, to the Senate for del- deliberation. And then, you know, the Senate will determine that this makes sense, we hope, and push it on to the president. And, uh, you know, even though the, the president has been supported by the NRA, the fact that this really doesn't affect him and it's a potential 2020 election issue, uh, I would I would expect he'll, you know, and, and you have Republican support of it, I would expect he'll sign it and just let it go. So our hope is to basically change this through, through a legislative process. Once it's amended like that it is, it's very difficult to change. It doesn't have a sunset provision. It becomes law of the land enforced by the federal government, by the ATF. And that's, you know, we want to make it tougher for things like Parkland and Sandy Hook and all these other awful things that have happened to change. And 
you're not creating a new law. You're just amending a exactly. law that already exists. Yeah. So it's already a law. Yeah. It's already – so basically it will be called reclassifying these weapons as – they'll be called NFA weapons. And subject. how do our listeners support you? So I, it's just a function of dollars. I mean we – you know, the dollars that we get is, are invested in changing this to get this law. So the easiest way to do it is we have – donate17.org. Our website is famsvar.org, which is family. Versus assault so rifles. donate seventeen dot org right and, and fams var var f a m s v a r dot org yes that that gets us to your our web page you can see who we are. Or, our mission, our, our bios to show that what we're doing. And then there's a, a donate function there and there's no limits. So, you know, if you want, somebody wants to give us $500,000, we would appreciate it. <laughs> and what do you do with the money? So we have two objectives. The short term, which is coming up very quickly, will basically to be invested in opposing uh, congressional and potentially Senate candidates, depending on how we do, who oppose this idea. And we're not supporting a candidate. We're opposing a candidate. So if someone says, hey, uh, you should have an AR-15 and it's more important than not, then we will look to try to via ads or digital ads or things like that, give people the idea that this is not a, the yeah, right to thing to do. out those people yeah. for their points of view on yeah. Absolutely. And we're single issue and we're not we're, – we're, there's nothing else that we're focused on. And then once we get past the midterms, it will literally be working through a, a lobbying, a constituent outreach, you know, things like that, letting voters in the states that are not necessarily be – you would think supportive of this on advocacy and education on why this is a good idea and that we're not looking to take away their rifles or affect their hunting or rural, things like that. So that would be the longer term view. And if we're successful in 2019, great. If not, we'll we'll come back and raise a lot more money and in 2020 make this a bigger issue. Who's we? So I have a great team. Are you the boss? I am the boss. The board members are parents uh, of Parkland students. Jeff Kasky, whose son Cameron was one of the founders of March for Our Lives, is, is our president. Sergio Rosenblatt, who's been interviewed as well, has a daughter still there. He's a uh, entertainment lawyer. Steve Wind is insurance business in Parkland. His son Alex has been active also um, in it. You know, so those are the kind of the keyboard members. And then other parents in there uh, have gotten more involved with us as well. So when we go onto your website, so you'll see those bios. F-A-M-S-V-A-R dot org. Yes. We go onto your website. We can do more reading about the work you're doing and we can all support you and help you. Yeah. And you yeah. can see who we are. And, and and again, we have a great team of, of people as well that are you know working for us. Um, are you a volunteer organization? Well, I have paid staff, but the board members are all volunteers. My intent was not to be a volunteer, but until I feel we've raised you know a significant capital that I could maybe get my rent paid. Mm-hmm. You know, I've not taken any money for this. Okay. Well, this is an amazing thing yeah, that you're, you're doing. doing God's work. It's really important. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity yeah. to get a it's chance to discuss this. so overwhelmingly horrible to see this did, going on. Did you on. see that there was a parent, his name I think is Manuel Oliver. Yeah, absolutely. Who did absolutely. a sculpture and this, his I son Joaquin. Well. I know Joaquin, um, yeah. So I'll tell you a Joaquin story. Tell us that story. And I'll try to do it without tears. So I went to um, Parkland when we launched this to meet with the community and introduce all the people. And they really wanted to introduce me because we've gotten a lot, had a lot of local press, national press about what we were doing. So we had this nice little event and this kid comes up to me and, you know, he's 
you know, about this tall and, and wearing a T-shirt and jeans. And uh, and first of all, he wants to show me his uh, his arm. And the kid works out. He's got like like huge biceps. And on his bicep is the, his best friend who died in Joaquin in there. And he's just, you know, it's his best friend. And he, so he basically got this amazing tattoo with his name on it. And he tells me about that. And he said, I really am happy for what you're trying to do. And it means a lot to me and, and others that, you know, trying to make a difference. And I said, well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. So basically 17 people died in Parkland. So our, so our theme is we asked for contributions in the form of 1,770, 1,700, 17,000, whatever. 1.7 million. Yeah, so 1.7. So 17, yeah, 1.7 million would be nice. So he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out eight $20 bills and two fives. And it, like he has it like this. And he says, so here's $170 that I'd like to contribute to what you're doing. And this is money I had made over the last month. And this is what I'm sure if it had happened to me, Joaquin would have done. So it was a, um, a very touching, you know, it was an emotional moment and, and all these parents around and stuff like that. And then he gives me a hug and says, thank you. And I said, don't thank me. And then so somebody said, why do I do this? I mean, why do I take five months off of a life of, of I just moved to uh, Santa Monica in May. I was looking forward to this great summer here, join a golf club, play golf, work on deals, do advisory projects, you know, bought a car, had my dog, all these things. And, you know, and taking all of that off and at the same time depleting my savings to do this. And and somebody will say, well, why do you do this? And I don't really have to answer it. I just say I have some reasons. So, you know, the effect that having these weapons out there, mil- these are military weapons. These are weapons designed to kill people, you know, with, with ease and efficiency and to have them so readily available and for people and members of Congress and senators like Ted Cruz and, and, and others who basically think it's more important for you to have that than the safety of your family or forget your own family of others is, is a, an issue. It's inconceivable. It's a moral issue. But it's been extraordinarily difficult. The, the problem is, is that every day is a new day of issues. I mean, it's like, oh, this is great. I want to help you. And then kids in cages. And then it's this. And then, you know, I mean, you know, everybody's entitled to their their opinion of our president, you know, and people can support him or not support him. Every day there's crazy stuff out there. Yeah. Is that there's a new crazy issue, and you know, so as successful as we would like to have been, where we could have really pounded this home, you know, we're plodding along. We'll, we'll hopefully be able to invest, depending on how our teachers' rollout goes, two or three races. You know, maybe tip them to elected officials that will uh, see this as an issue. There are 19 former vets that are running in the United States that totally support this. They're all Democrats. Uh, I saw that the other day. I was reading about that. Yeah, uh, Seth Moulton, who's... Uh, and how many people who have never been politicians before who right. are running for Stepping election. Forward, yeah. yeah, so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about... And from the Republican side, too, I'm excited that, that we move away from this, you know, politics has gone from what I would consider like the, like the NFL, a full contact sport, you know, where it's a tough place. It's gladiator now. It's not yeah. enough no, it's that, terrible. that you beat your opponent, that you basically beat your opponent and you chop his head off. Yeah. 
and, and then run, and then run your car over his chopped head. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then and then you hold your sword up and yeah. said, "Look what yeah, I, I did. won. Yeah, I won." So so unfortunately, we're in this period of time that is has grown. Not just I don't blame Donald Trump for this. This has been a, a work in progress for a while. Yeah, it's not. We'd like to blame him for everything, but that would not be. No, he's. he's I want to just repeat this, if I may. So I would like to reiterate to all of our listeners to please go f a m s v a r dot org and please support the work that Matt's doing. And on behalf of everybody, thank you. Thank, Thanks, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Really, Thanks. Next time, Dr. Ava Shamban is best known as the skincare maven from TV's Extreme Makeover and The Doctors. Her journey from top Harvard Medical School grad to trailblazing research scientist leading at the forefront of state-of-the-art high-tech dermatological techniques is an inspiration. Dr. Ava lectures internationally, serves as a principal investigator on many FDA trials, and is the author of Heal Your Skin, the Breakthrough Plan for Renewal. She is an assistant clinical professor at the UCLA Geffen School of Medicine and has private practices in Santa Monica and Beverly Hills. She's a frequently quoted health and beauty expert all over the world. So join us when we rewind to the beginning to find out how Dr. Ava does it all on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 